the book of Ephesians. Well, some time ago, I came across a very odd story in a book I was reading, and it caught my attention. The author was describing how a southern plantation owner left a $50,000 inheritance to a former slave. And that's because the slave had served him really faithfully through his entire life. And today, $50,000 doesn't sound like a lot. I mean, it probably sounds like a lot to you. But in the grand scheme of things, uh, that's not a lot. But in that day, it would have been the equivalent of roughly half a million dollars. So imagine that, a former slave owner leaving half a million dollars to uh, a former slave. The old man was notified of his inheritance, but he never withdrew any of it. After many weeks had gone by, the banker eventually called him to remind him that his inheritance was available and he could call on it whenever he needed it. So the banker was a little perplexed. And listen to what the old man said. He said, Sir, do you think I can have 50 cents to buy a sack of cornmeal? Apparently, during his time as a slave, he didn't handle much money or really any at all because he had no idea of the significance of the fortune that he had been left. And because he didn't know the magnitude of what had been given to him, he didn't have any idea how to use it. And so he continued to live in in poverty. Now, I don't know how that story ended. The author didn't tell me. kind of left me on a cliffhanger. Um, Maybe he never got out of poverty. But let's... Let's pretend, in my mind, let's extend this story out a little bit. Let's pretend the banker came to the man's house or, or whatever he was living in with the 50 cents that he had asked for. Okay, So he comes with the 50 cents, and behind him was a whole wagon full of quarters. Hang with me. And behind that, another wagon full of quarters. And behind that, another wagon full of quarters. And after giving this man his 50 cents, he pointed to the wagons outside that were full of quarters and said, all this is yours too. And by the way, there's enough quarters to keep filling up wagons as much as you can think of. Do you think the old man at this point would would have begun to grasp the significance of his inheritance? I think so. And as a result, his life would change. Knowing the magnitude of what he had been given, the magnitude of his inheritance, he would know then how to use it. He would have categories for how to to put this into practice. And in a spiritual sense, that's exactly what's going on in the book of Ephesians. The believers that Paul's writing to, they were in danger of living in spiritual poverty. And so are we today. Paul knows that we're threatened day in and day out. With the, lives of, with the lies of deceitful schemes, uh, with the temptations of the powers of darkness. He knows we're plagued with indwelling and persistent sin, a sin that's very familiar and comfortable to our old natures, and sin that threatens to destroy our lives. 
And in short, he knows that we're tempted to minimize the spiritual resources that that we have at our disposal and to believe the lie that we're still in spiritual poverty. So thank God for a letter like Ephesians. That's why I'm so excited to study it. The letter is a breathtaking description of, here's a quote, the immeasurable riches of God's grace. Chapter 2, 7. It's a breathtaking description of these riches of God's grace that we've received. Paul is like the banker. He's writing to remind us of what God has freely given to us in Christ, the magnitude of our inheritance. We are incredibly wealthy spiritually, more than we could ever deserve or ever imagine. And it's all because of what Christ has accomplished for us. Paul desperately wants the church to understand this, which is one of the reasons that he wrote this letter. He wants to take us into the depths of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Another quote from the book, chapter 3, verse 8. And Paul knows if we begin to grasp what God has truly done for us by faith, if we get a glimpse of the depth of His grace, then our lives will inevitably begin to change. We will live differently if we believe what he writes in this letter. And that's what it all hinges on, is faith. Trusting that this is true. In short, he he wants us to know what to do with the grace that we've received. How to spend it for God's glory. How to make our lives count in the evil days that we live in. How to survive the onslaught of our greatest enemy, Satan. And how to live as God's new humanity that he's created for himself. So today, what I'd like for us to do is just to begin to get our bearings in this letter. And I want us to do that by looking at the first few verses, these opening verses together, verses 1 and 2. And in these initial verses, we're going to notice three obvious but really important features about the letter. So that's where we're going. Three obvious but really important features about the letter. And as we walk through these these two verses here, we're going to give some background on why he's writing this letter, who he's writing it to, and the significance of all that. So, three important features about this letter that we can observe. And this first feature of the letter is that, again, I said it's obvious, but it's written by the Apostle Paul. It's written by the Apostle Paul. That's the first feature of this letter. Read with me in in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Or we could say Paul is writing, you know, as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. No verb, but it's, it's supplied there. So it's written by the apostle Paul. Well, you probably know if you're, if you're entering into a book or a study on anything, you, you want to know who wrote it and maybe a little bit about him. So, you probably know the story of Paul, right? How many of you are familiar with that? Probably all of you, yes. But if you're not, he was a staunch Pharisee. He was the worst enemy of the church. The book of Acts tells us. He was humbled by the Lord, literally knocked off his high horse, Um, He was humbled on the road to Damascus, and three days later, he was commissioned by the same Lord into into his service. 
So Christ took an enemy of the gospel, humbled him, and made him his servant. And that's part of the, one of the themes of Acts, is that the sovereignty of our king, the Lord Jesus, he, could, he does whatever he wants. Like humbling Paul and, and enlisting him. But Paul never forgot this former life of sin that he lived in. Later in this very letter, in chapter 3, Paul will call himself the very least of all the saints. You hear the language of that? The very least, so there's no one lower, of all the saints. So Paul never forgot this. He never forgot where he came from. And, and through Paul, God highlighted the magnitude of his grace. In Paul's very life. And Paul never forgot it. In fact, this is where Paul's tenderness and zeal came from. This understanding of of the grace of God that he had been given. It's how Paul kept loving those hard-to-love Christians. You don't know what I'm talking about, right? Nobody's hard to love. I am very difficult to love. Just ask my wife sometimes. It's how, he, it's how he found the motivation to, kept lo- to keep loving those, those sometimes hard-to-love Christians and those impossible-to-love enemies. The people that imprisoned him, beat him, slandered him, yet he loved them. How? Well, Paul knew the, the kind of radical grace that he had been shown as an enemy, and that, that transformed him. And shortly after this conversion, it was God's direct choice to make him an apostle. Wouldn't be the guy that I would choose uh, right out of the gate, but God has his purposes and his ways to display his glory. And he chose to make an enemy, his enemy, his arch enemy, if you will, his apostle. And that choice took everybody else some time to get used to. Initially, people were scared of him. Rightly so. I mean, imagine the Apostle Paul walking up in here uh, after he had just imprisoned and killed your family. For the, for the sake, of, for the sake of, of Judaism. And now he's in your church. Now he's claiming that God is going to use him uh, as his choice instrument. So people were initially scared of him, thought he was a fake, thought he was an imposter, you know, kind of coming in under, undercover. But after they heard him preach, after they watched him suffer for the name, after they saw his consistent care for God's people, they became convinced that he was the real deal. So that's a, a bit about Paul and his, his apostleship. But what exactly is an apostle? So we're looking at, at verse 1. He calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ, again, by the will of God, meaning that his, it was his choice, God's choice, to make him an apostle. But what, what does it mean to be an apostle? Well, if, if you just want a quick summary, uh, there's, let me back up a bit. The word apostle is just a generic word that became significant in the New Testament, okay? In sort of a, an office, if you will, a special office. So there's a couple of uses in the New Testament of this word apostle. So it's of the 12 original disciples that Jesus chose to become his apostles. That's how we typically think of it. You can think of it, capital A, apostle, right? Then there's another use where it's just people that are sent out by the church on behalf of Jesus. So that's the, the word apostle just means one who is sent with authority. So Barnabas, other guys are, are called apostles, even though they're not capital A apostles. Now, Paul is kind of an interesting third category, because he wasn't one of the twelve, yet he was a capital A apostle. He was kind of number 13. Uh, and I think that was because of, of what he was 
designated to do, and we'll get into that in a minute, as a, a particularly an apostle to the Gentiles, people that were non-Jews. But an apostle, if you just want a basic definition, is, is one who is sent with the authority of another, the one who sent them. They're, they're bearing that authority, the one who sent them. And in this case, it's, it's an official delegate of the Lord Jesus, a representative of Christ himself. And this, this letter of Ephesians actually fleshes out in a little more detail what these apostles are, what they do, and in particular, Paul's apostleship and what it, what it is and, and, and what he is tasked to do. Look in chapter 2, verse 20. We'll pick up in, in verse 19. He's reminding the church, these Gentiles, of of what they've been brought into. He says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You used to be, but you're not. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Notice this. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So there's a foundational element to an apostle and a prophet. But we're talking about apostles right now. There's a foundational element to an apostle, meaning they're laying the foundation for the church. These apostles provided the foundational teachings from the Lord Jesus to the church. So that that was their role. So they're foundational in the sense that, that they're laying a foundation with Christ as the cornerstone that the church is going to be built off of. And if we keep going in the letter, we, we realize that Paul is specifically set apart to preach God's mystery to Gentiles with the goal of seeing them converted. Look in chapter 3. It says, For this reason, verse 1, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Okay, do you hear that? Paul was given a stewardship. He was given an entrustment of, of God's grace, i.e. the gospel. This entrustment. It was given to Paul for the sake of you, he says. Gentiles. For you. And he explains a little bit further. Verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. That's a reference to this letter as a whole. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Something that wasn't revealed before, but it's now been revealed. This mystery of the Lord Jesus. Which was, again, he goes to say, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles, there it is again, and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles, you, are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And he continues fleshing this out. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to what was he doing? This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So, Paul's apostleship has a preaching element to it. And he's supposed to preach these unsearchable riches of, of Christ to the Gentiles. 
And he says in verse 9, to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that's, that's Paul's role, is to preach, is to make known a mystery to these people who may have not known that before. In fact, no one knew about it in the Old Testament. It's, it's a new thing that God is revealing to his holy apostles and prophets. Now, so one of Paul's roles as an apostle is to preach the gospel to see Gentiles converted. And if we keep going in the letter, again, apostles are part of this kind of total gift package, if you will, to the church. And it, God gave them to the church so the church would grow up to full maturity. You see that in, in chapter 4, verse 11. So look with me there, chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave, that's he gave to the church as gifts, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So Paul's apostleship had evangelism as one of its goals and also had the building up to maturity as the other one of his goals. So so what exactly is an apostle? It's, It's one who is sent with the authority of another. In this case, it's an official delegate of the Lord Jesus who represents him, who who preaches, makes known this mystery of the gospel to Gentiles and leads them, builds them up to maturity. Now, why am I going into all that? All right. I'm seeing the glaze happening. The Sunday morning glaze. All right. The reason I'm saying that is because one of the central ways that Paul does this is through his letter writing. Okay? Through writing scripture like this letter to the Ephesians. All from this first verse, okay? This letter that you hold in your hands, it's in your Bible. Each one of you have is intended by God to transform you. You see the chain? God, Paul, church, 2,000 years, you. God chose Paul. He revealed his mystery to him. He inspired Paul to write this letter and preserved it for us some 2,000 year, for some 2,000 year period. To where you have it in your hands today in the 21st century in boundless this morning. And God gave you the money or a gift or an app to get this Bible, to get this letter. He ordained that you come in contact with the letter. He caused you to be here this morning because he wants to speak to you personally, every one of you, the words of this letter so that you might be enriched. You might understand what you have in Christ and live a transformed life as a result. And that's why he chose Paul, so that he might reveal God's glorious gospel to you. All right? So that's where we're headed. Paul, this letter is written by the Apostle Paul. That's the first feature of the letter that we've seen. The second feature of the letter is that it's intended for the Ephesian church. It's intended for the Ephesian church, or intended for the saints at Ephesus. Look in the second half of verse 1. If you flip back to chapter 1, 
Second half of verse 1. Paul's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So this isn't the first time that Paul has interacted with the Ephesians. Okay? If you're unfamiliar to the context of this letter, it's not the first time. In fact, Paul was instrumental in bringing the gospel to this influential city. They had experienced firsthand what he's talking about as, as Paul being the a foundational element in, in Ephesus. Paul was there, and, and on his second missionary journey, Paul briefly visited the Ephesian synagogue. At least that's the first recorded time Paul makes contact with Ephesus. He quickly left the synagogue after he had interacted for a brief bit, but he told them that he intended to return if God allowed it. And if you want to read about that, you can, it's Acts 18. So then, a few years later, around AD 52, okay, he did return, and he ministered there for about three years. And that's described in Acts 19. And that's one thing you could, you could write down and read about. And that's a, that's a riveting chapter. God, Paul describes it as an open door for ministry there uh, with much opposition. <laughs> and that's really a great description. So, Paul did mighty things to the apostle in Ephesus. And it was hard. Okay? It, it, was, it was tough sailing there from a, from a spiritual standpoint, even though God was blessing the ministry. He was blessing it and sustaining Paul through much persecution. So, Paul made quite an impact. The Lord, through Paul, made quite an impact in, in Ephesus. Well, eventually, Paul left the city. He continued his, his mission, you know, his church planting mission elsewhere as he, as he went to other places. And Acts tells us that Paul was eventually arrested and he ended up under house arrest in Rome. That's how the book ends, of the book of Acts. He's in house arrest in Rome. And that's likely when he wrote this letter. So it's some five years after he had originally ministered there. And there's evidence that, that he was in prison from, from the letter itself. I mean, in chapter 3, we just read that. Chapter 3, verse 1, he calls himself a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He tells them a little bit later in that same chapter... Um, not to lose heart over what he's suffering for them, because it's going to result in their glory. So, beautiful picture here of this imprisoned apostle uh, writing one of the most glorious letters, in my opinion, in the New Testament um, to the saints at Ephesus to encourage them. So, what was this church like, the church in Ephesus? Well, we don't know much from the letter itself. Except one thing, and it's a massive observation, okay? These believers were mostly Gentile, if not all Gentile. Mostly Gentile. And just by understanding the flow of the letter and what's going on here, they were likely struggling to understand how they as non-Jews fit into God's program. So, reading the Old Testament, we don't have time for an Old Testament sketch, but it's, it was... Gentiles were kind of, kind of second class. They knew from the Old Testament that they would be saved in some sense, but that they're saved at the same level as the Jew brought in. They, they're indwelt with the Spirit. All of that was a mystery. And to compound that, you got a bunch of Jews running around saying that the Messiah wasn't supposed to be crucified, that it's all a farce, and these Gentiles aren't really included. So you can see kind of how that, that, was, that would be problematic. And... 
you know, Paul was writing, I think we can get a hint of how of what he was writing about by seeing how he describes these believers in this first or in this the end of the first verse here. He, he calls them saints, Ephesian saints, and he calls them faithful in Christ Jesus. So really three three designators here, saints, faithful and in union with Christ. And really, you know, we're not talking about saints in the Roman Catholic sense, okay? So hang with me here. These are, to be a saint means to be set apart and, and holy, a holy person. And again, we're talking about former Gentiles who lived thoroughly pagan lives. Paul's calling them saints right now. You are a saint if you're a believer in Christ Jesus. You're a holy one. And he calls them faithful. The second designation, faithful. So they're in a sense full of faith and their, their lives are, are progressively reflecting, reflecting that. But the key phrase, how all this is possible, is this third description here. Saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? It's one of Paul's favorite phrases he's going to use throughout this entire letter. And we're going to see the, the glory of this phrase as we work through the letter. But it means... Union with Christ. In Christ Jesus means we, we've come into union with Him by faith. So why is that significant? That's significant because everything He, he did, His perfect life, you now share in. You're in union with Him. And His death that He died was on your behalf. So, to put it differently, the you're riddled with sin. That's all you've ever done in your heart. Your heart's deceitfully wicked. You've only incurred God's wrath. And Christ, all He ever did was only incur God's blessing because He was perfectly faithful. And you deserve to die. You deserve to be crucified and put under God's wrath for the sins that you've committed. But Christ absorbed that for you. He absorbed God's wrath. He took the death that you should have that you should have died. And then on the flip side, he earned the righteousness that you desperately need. And all of that flows to you through what he's done. That's what it means to be in union with the Lord Jesus. To be in Christ. So, these Christians are holy and faithful because, fundamentally, they are in Christ. Because he is holy and faithful. And that's a massive perspective shift that's going, to be, that's going to just bleed through this entire letter. Okay? And we're going to explore that later as we, as, we, as we work through the letter. And Paul really wants these Gentile believers to know what God has done for them. He wants them to know who they are in Christ. He wants them to see the vast riches of God's grace toward them in Christ. And he wants them to live out this glorious salvation in real time in this wicked world for God's glory. So how does he do that? How does he do that? What's, how's the letter structured? What's, the, what's really the argument of the letter? Okay. This is sort of the high altitude version of the letter. and We're going to get into specifics as we go. But really the letter is broken up into two halves. Okay, Two halves. First half is chapters 1 through 3. And the second half is chapters 4 through 6. 
And in this first half of the letter, Paul explains really the magnitude of what we've been graciously given in Christ. So just to get a flavor for this, I want you to listen to the language that Paul uses here in these first three chapters. And before I read this, I know it's early. I'm seeing some kind of, a little, little bit more of the glaze. All right, let me just connect with you for a minute. You don't deserve any of this stuff that I'm about to read to you. Like, we have only incurred the wrath of God because of what we've done against Him. And you have to see this with that backdrop. So listen to the language of this letter. Paul tells us we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Chapter 1, verse 3. Paul tells us that we've been given the riches of His grace that God lavished that upon us. Paul tells us we've been given the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. He wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us. He wants us to realize that God is rich in mercy, that He loves us with a great love that we have in chapter 2, immeasurable riches in Christ that we have the unsearchable riches of Christ, chapter 3, 8. The riches of glory, verse 16. The love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, verse 19. That God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. This is the God who consumed sinners in the Old Testament and who consumed Ananias and Sapphira for lying in Acts. This is a holy God who has satisfied all of His wrath in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And all that is left for believers is grace upon grace. You feel that? And Paul wants you to understand that. He uses the highest language. Great, immeasurable, unsearchable, abundant. He uses value language. Riches, glorious, blessings. Clearly, Paul is trying to communicate something to us of incredible magnitude. So what does he communicate about us that he wants us to understand? Well, I'll just summarize a little bit here. He, in the first chapter, he dizzies us with God's grace. He goes back before anything ever started to God's mind, His plan, and says, God chose for you to receive this before you were ever born. And we're going to unpack that in the weeks to come. But God chose you to receive the magnitude of His grace. He chose us to be redeemed for His glory. In chapter 2, He tells us that God acted to give us spiritual life When we were dead, in the grave, no ability to respond, He effected salvation for us. He called us out from the dead and gave us life. He tells us in the end of chapter 2, end of chapter 3, that God has now included us into His covenant people, which we were outsiders 
We were without hope. Had no idea of how bad off we were. We really don't even know how bad off we are outside of Christ's area right now. That's part of the fall. We think we're okay. But he, he helps us see where we were at and now what we've become. And God's Holy Spirit is now residing among us like he did in the temple. So he wants us to understand these things and that they all come to us in Christ. And Paul knows if we're really to understand and believe these things, that our lives will radically change. So, but, but before we get there, one thing, one observation to make about this is that our ability to understand these things that Paul is so desperately writing, he's trying to get, he's trying to get us to see this, it doesn't come from us alone. Throughout these first three chapters, this first half of the letter, in two places, it's like Paul catches his breath and starts praying. He starts praying. God must help us to understand these things. So he, he fervently prays that we would understand it. Look in, in, in chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Here's what I'm praying. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul is interceding that the church would, would see this, that God would, would give us the spiritual eyes to perceive this. He does it again at the end of this section in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why? That you may be filled with the fullness of God. And so he prays. He's on his knees, interceding for the church and all who would come after this Ephesian church, like Timberlake, Boundless College Ministry to know the love of Christ that surpasses us, to know the riches of this glorious inheritance that we've received. So that's the first half of the letter. He wants us to know the magnitude of what we've received, and he prays for us to understand it. In the second half of the letter, Paul starts drawing some equally massive implications of these truths. I mean, they're massive implications of these truths. He helps us because we're slow. We're slow to connect the dots, Okay? Okay, yeah, I believe that. I'm going to still live this way. Paul's like, no. You know, it, it requires a change of life, a change of direction, a change of purpose, a change of aim. And he helps us connect those dots from what we believe to how our lives should reflect those beliefs. He explains the implications of God's grace given to us that we're to live lives that are radically transformed and like Him. And the order is significant. How we have been treated by God will become the pattern for how we treat others. 
And if you don't know how you've been treated by God, you have no ability to treat others in the way that God commands you to treat them. Does it make sense? So that's why the letter is laid out the way it's laid out. These are the massive implications. He says things like, we should humbly pursue unity together. That leads to maturity as we're using our gifts together in the local church. He tells us to reject the old life that was corrupt and decaying. Things like lying and deceit and laziness and sexual immorality and lust. That's all got to go. Anger, bitterness, not forgiving people, gossiping about them. Got to go. That's the old man that's corrupted. That's hellbound. Okay? That's got to go. And there's a new life that Christ has earned for you, that you've got to put on. He's, he's obtained the wardrobe. It's time for you to put the clothes on now. It looks like pursuing a new life, an imitation of Christ. He says, telling the truth, working hard for His glory so you can be generous, living a life that's full of, of meaning, making the best use of your time, being profitable and fruitful in those things. He just lays it all out, knowing how to work for the glory of God. And really, the rest of the letter, after chapter 4 on, really walks through what this new life looks like. It looks like living in submission to the Holy Spirit. You were once governed by your passions, and that's all you had. That's, you were enslaved to that. But now the Spirit is, is residing in you, and now He governs your life. And so it's learning to yield to Him. It's learning what this looks like in marriage. Alright, so I would assume a lot of you want to be married. Some of you are. This letter unpacks the practicalities of marriage and how it's based on those first three chapters. It talks about home life. I'm assuming some of you want to be parents. This is a great time to learn that stuff, okay? And God's commands in the, that domain, work, how work is, is, happens and how God expects you to, to work and live for His glory. How we're to stand against the onslaught of Satan by putting on the armor of God. All that stuff's in the back half of this book. And it is, it is outstanding. So really, he's writing to these Ephesians, these saints at Ephesus. And this is, is really why he's writing. He's wanting them to understand the glory of what they've been given and know how to spend those riches for the sake of Christ. And that leads us to our third feature. Don't worry. This is going to take like two, one minute maybe. It begins, this letter begins with a profound greeting. Profound greeting. Now, the reason I'm calling it that is because you probably read this verse and you think, yep, cool, all right, verse 3, let's go. Let's get in the letter. Grace and peace, he says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I surveyed the content of this book so that you would feel the magnitude of this greeting. Paul offers... It's, it's, just a, it's just a greeting. It's a way of greeting this church. But, but he offers them two things or assures them or affirms them that, that they have two things, these two blessings, and they're flowing from the throne of God and from Christ, the Father and the Son. And what's flowing is grace and peace. Grace is God's favor. His favor that is freely given to those who deserve His wrath because of Christ. This is God's disposition toward you if you believe Him today. 
we stand in the, the room of grace. Okay? Grace to you, he says, and then the result, peace. This is the result of Christ's death on our behalf. Christ's death made peace between us and God. We were at war with Him, in rebellion against Him, following after Satan and, and being used by Satan against the plan and the mission of God in this world. Every one of you were doing that. You did it from birth. And yet, now, you've been turned around, you've been given grace, and that results in peace between God, who was once your enemy, who is now your friend. And this, this peace, this objective peace, enables us to rest in God and to be at peace with each other. Okay, you see that? And to live in unity with each other. Something that before we were unable to do. And those two themes of grace and peace run throughout this whole letter and they show up again at the very end of the letter. As he gives them a farewell, in chapter 6, verse 23, he says, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So again, he's, he's opening and closing the letter with these this packaging of grace and peace. Because it's all flowing to us from what Christ has accomplished and it's, it's at the very heart of God toward you. So, today we've received a glimpse of these vast riches of God's grace toward us in Christ. And in the weeks to come, we're going to take a closer look at these riches. Uh, what a tragedy for us to have these resources and not know how to use them. To have everything we need, not realize it, forget, not really understand what this stuff means or how to appropriate it into our lives to make a real difference. I don't want you, I don't want my family, I, I don't want to live an impoverished Christian life when I am wealthy in the Lord. And so praise God for this letter to the Ephesians, and we're going to explore it uh, together in the weeks to come. I've got some thoughts on how to make the most of this study, but I'll email that to you because we're out of time. Um, ways that you can really profit from our study that involves not just sitting here and listening, just part of it, but also in, in um, engaging outside of this context. Let's pray.